bin okay, ein Playstation gab es. I invite you to join me one last time. This morning, the book of Hebrews, the 13th chapter. For weeks now, I've contemplated what I might say this morning. I knew these might be my last words for many of you, and I didn't want to mess up as others have done. (laughs) For instance, Jim Harkins said, I want to die peacefully in my sleep like my grandfather, not screaming in terror like his passengers. (laughs) You may need to think about that one for a minute. Or General Sedgwick who was killed at the Spotsylvania battle in 1864, who, as he's looking over a parapet, says, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. (laughs) Or the guy who says, somebody give me a match so I can see where this gas is coming from. (laughs) Clearly, last words are important. So as I considered what I might say to you this morning as my, one of my last messages as one of your pastors here at this church, I landed on some of the last words in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. The word of the Lord says this. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Lord, help me now. Help us now to hear from you. To bring glory to you. In the name of Christ. Amen. Twelve and a half years. One hundred and fifty months. Roughly 650 Lord's Days we've spent together. Calculated this week that if you count the Sunday morning sermons, Sunday evenings, Wednesday nights, and Sunday school classes over the last 12 years, I've had the opportunity to open God's Word to you nearly 500 times. On the whole... Been an incredible journey together. But I gotta be honest, it's not all been good. In fact, most of you probably don't know this, but there was a point that we almost didn't come to Springfield. Because the first time we came here to interview, they took us to Mexican Villa. (laughs) 
Now, I know some of you like Mexican Villa, which is why you will always be in my prayers. And how I can be certain that post-millennialism is untrue. But the Lord brought us here, questions and all. But I suspect we weren't the only ones with questions. Like the questions running through Doug's mind some years later when he is shocked in the middle of the night to get a call from Clarissa telling him that he may need to bail me out of jail. (laughs) Which is a far better reality, mind you, than if his response had been, again? difficult to say goodbye in some ways to you. But all of us will one day have to say goodbye. Some of you will say goodbye to good places, places you don't want to leave, much like my scenario. Others of you may someday have to say goodbye in difficult situations. But we all will say The text before us points to the very things that keep us together, even when our situations can pull us apart. Now this passage is obviously a part of the book of Hebrews, a book that's probably had more impact on my life, on my theology, on my preaching, and just in general my faithfulness than any other book I've had opportunity to study and teach. I love this book. Nothing comforts me or challenges me the way Hebrews does. And I love the fact that we had, as was said earlier, nearly 80 women or over 80 women this weekend studying the book of Hebrews and hearing gifted and faithful ladies teaching that. Now don't worry, I sat in the back with fingers in my ears so that no one could accuse me of being taught by a woman. I say that completely in jest. It was fantastic. Thank you to the ladies who taught, who organized, who planned, who developed, and to the women who came. I I hope all of you were blessed. At any rate, as you know, the author is writing to these beleaguered Christians, these these Hebrew Christians who are apparently suffering persecution and, and are tempted to abandon the gospel. They're, they're contemplating returning back to Judaism, to, to return back to the, some of the solidarity that they might have as this small, isolated group of Christians. And after an incredible letter of exhortation and exaltation, of, of comfort and of challenge, he brings this letter to a close with a farewell. A request for prayer for him. In verse 18, we read this. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, because we don't know exactly who the author to the Hebrews is, we aren't exactly sure what his personal circumstances are. Had he been unwillingly separated from them due to arrest or persecution? Had he been called away to do ministry elsewhere? Would he, in his lifetime, be reunited with this particular congregation 
we simply don't know. But we do know that in recognizing the circumstances that separated him from them, he prays for the unity that will preserve them. And there's two things in this text that support that unity that I would draw your attention to today. The first is our great The thing that unites us and sustains us is our God. Verse 20 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the covenant. Each of those phrases describes our great God and merit our attention. One of the things that makes our God so great is that our God is a God of peace. Peace is intrinsic to the nature and the character of God. And we see this over and over again in the life of Jesus. Have you ever noticed how zen and how uncaffeinated Jesus is? I mean, he's out in the middle of the desert being tempted by Satan, and he quotes Deuteronomy. How many of you have ever quoted Deuteronomy in the middle of a temptation? How many of you can quote Deuteronomy at all? (laughs) The Pharisees are trying to trip him up and trap him. And he's not shaken. A prostitute bursts into a party that he is at, dumps perfume all over him, and he is cool and calculated. Turns it into a teaching moment. He's fast asleep in the fishing boat in the middle of a storm even as he's being arrested he's completely calm at peace you know what rattles jesus you know what stressed jesus out facing the righteous wrath of god facing the judgment and the condemnation that every one of us deserves. That's what gets under Jesus' skin. And what's amazing, though, is that because he endures that, we can have that same kind of peace. Hebrews 7.26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests. To offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Now we read that and we'd be tempted to think, of course it was fitting for us to have such a wonderful high priest. I deserve only the best. Which is true, but not for the reasons you would think. Only this perfectly obedient, completely innocent unstained sacrifice could cover all of the rebellion all of the impurity all of the debt and sin that characterizes us and that's what hebrews tells us over and over again that we need this perfect high priest and this perfect high priest offered this perfect lamb and that jesus is both because he is the sinless son of god he is holy enough to cover for us and because he is also a son of adam he is human enough to substitute for us 
And through this, we have peace with God. A peace that is not some superficial, happy-go-lucky attitude. This is not a, a superficial happiness. This is saying that the God who has created the universe, He and I are on good terms. And if He loves me, as He has proven to have done by sending His Son, then what can anything or anyone else do to me? And to be sure, this is a peace that gets shaken from time to time. We get flustered. We get anxious. But if we are in Christ, the, the bedrock of our soul is the truth. Hebrews 12 and 12 and 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. Our God of peace is bringing peace. It may not look like it right now. It may look like our culture is polarized and depraved, that it is fraught with vice and violence, but our great God brings peace. And we know that because he's not just a God of peace. He is also a God of power. Listen to what else is said here. The God of peace brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Our God is powerful. He can do all things. Recently, I came across a story. I, I can't vouch for its authenticity, but it, but it makes this point incredibly true. It was about this uh, this Sunday school class, and this small little girl was, was attending the class, and that morning they were talking about the Exodus, about the crossing of the Red Sea. And this little girl speaks up, and she says, Praise the Lord, what an amazing God! He could send the Israelites through the Red Sea on dry ground. And the teacher said, Well, you don't really understand. It wasn't really the Red Sea. It was just some other little body of water that had a, a low tide and as the wind blew through it the whole nation Israelite passed by in about six inches of water to which the little girl responded that's amazing praise the Lord he drowned the whole Egyptian army in six inches of water she got the right idea but I wouldn't diminish God's ability our God is the God who has created the universe, who parts the seas, who heals the blind, the lame, the deaf, and raised from the dead our Lord and Savior Jesus. And because he has done that, these Hebrew Christians needed to know, and we need to know that we do not need to be ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes this same power that made Jesus' heart start beating again and made his chest start rising and falling again with air in his lungs. That same power that burst that stone from the tomb is the power of our God. This God is the God of peace, the God of power, and he has made promises. In the last part of verse 22, 
20, we read about the blood and the eternal covenant. The blood of Jesus Christ, referring to his death and crucifixion and resurrection, are the climax of the promises that God has made. From all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God has made promises. Promises that were declared to us, but had been planned all the way back in eternity. Promises that the book of Hebrews will draw on over 18 different times. Promises that declare a plan for the world that feature the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Promises made to Adam and Eve and to Noah and Abraham and David and us. The promises that continue to grow and flourish, though sometimes hidden and sometimes unseen. These promises reveal God's generosity and his goodness towards human beings. Showing his grace and love and mercy even for those who have rebelled against him. And if this God who is all powerful has made promises, they will not change. We can bank our lives on the fact that what God has said will happen. That he is able to fulfill what he says. That he rules over the world. And is able to put into effect what he pledges. We need these promises. Hebrews 6.11 says, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full, full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Thirteen years ago, I had somebody tell me that I wasn't cut out to be a pastor. That I was too introverted. That I didn't have the charisma or the leadership that was necessary to serve a church. And I asked him, I said, well, where does the Bible say those things are necessary to be in ministry? And he said, well, it doesn't. But those are the things you're going to need if you're going to last. Can I tell you, friends, that what has gotten us through joys and sorrows in our family and in our church, what has kept me from, from quitting in difficult times and giving up is not my personality type. It is not my charisma or lack thereof. It is the fact that God has made promises and that he continues to keep them. You know from the book of Hebrews that over and over again we hear this stories of, of the Old Testament heroes and, and people. And of course part of the reason is to provide faithful examples of individuals in history. But even more than that, Hebrews wants us to see that the God of Israel, the, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And even more than that, the people of Hebrews, the, the people of the New Covenant, the people of you of us today that are Christians, the thing that we have more to be grateful about, more to be confident about, and we have more to be thankful for. This is our God. He is the God of the Old Testament saints and the God of the New Testament saints. 
He is the God of Israel and the God of Babylon. He is the God of North America and Africa and Asia, South America. He is the God of Springfield, Missouri and of Waterloo, Illinois. Our God has brought us this far to sustain us till the last. Brothers and sisters, what you and I share is more than 12 years of living in the same town and going to the same church. What we have is more than the shared experiences and memories that we've created. It's more than Wayne Garrison and I trying to catch a snake that we found crawling in the auditorium one Thursday afternoon. It's more than Nathan Murphy getting a speeding ticket while trying to catch up with the rest of the youth buses. <laughs> it's more than the number of anonymous envelopes that were slid under my office door filled with the cash that would exactly cover the unexpected car repairs or medical bills that come up in our lives. All of those are true and great, but all of those pale in comparison to what we share in our great God, the things that we share in the gospel are what give foundation to those shared experience. The God that has saved us has made us more than friends, more than neighbors. It has made us family. It has united us around his promises by his power and granted us his peace. This is what keeps us. This is what unites us. This is what sustains us. And it does so wherever we live and however we sleep. There's a second thing that we are united by. Not only our great God, but our great past. Another way to think about this passage is, is the, the object of the prayer, God, to the one to whom we pray, and the outcome of the prayer, the thing that we are praying for, who we pray to and what we pray for. You could read verse 21 this way. Now may our great God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now in this context, the task, as it were, may seem a little bit nebulous. That we may, as he says, do his will. Not always an easy thing to define. Should I take this job or that job? Should I marry this person or not? Should I buy the red brick house or the gray brick house? But you know what? While those questions are often things that we pray about, that is not what the author of Hebrews is praying about. Do you know what the, the mind of the, the author in Hebrews is in regards to doing the will of God? It is not about what wife to choose or what job to choose. When he prays for these folks to do the will of God, what he has in mind is the, the thing that he has been preaching on for the last 12 chapters. Do you know what the will of God is for this preacher? It's really simple. 
faithfulness. It's faith-fueled endurance. He doesn't care what car they buy or what job they have. He is praying for the same things that he has exhorted them to do from chapter 1. That these believers would stay faithful to the gospel. That instead of choosing what may be easy or acceptable to compromise on the gospel to return to judaism to abandon their hope instead of doing that they would do god's will that they would cling to the gospel that they would draw near to god that they would encourage one another all the more as they see that day approaching that they would desire what is better That was his task. That was the Hebrews' task. And that is ours as well. The task is the task that was required of those wandering Israelites. It's the task that was required of these these struggling Hebrew Christians. It is the task that is set before each and every single one of us. And there is a little bit of comfort, I think. And knowing that no matter where you are, no matter what you are going through, no matter what lays before you, you don't have to wonder what you're supposed to do. You are to be faithful. There is no mystery about what each of us is to do tomorrow morning. We must remain faithful. We are to cling to the gospel. We are to stand on the truth of God's word. We are to bring Glory to Christ through our endurance. Because that is so certain, so clear, and so crucial, we ought to pray that God would carry that out in us. That is what he prays for. That is what I pray for, for all of us. And this verse, like the one before it, it breaks down phrase by phrase into a pretty easy outline. He, He talks first about this task in the way that we are equipped That we would be equipped with every good thing necessary for doing his will. That word equipped has with it the idea of perfecting or maintaining or mending or, or building something up so that it's useful. I gotta tell you, 12 years ago, I sat in a restaurant with our pastor. It was the weekend that I had come in view of a call to be voted on. And I remember a conversation that I had with Doug. I don't know if you remember this or not. I told Doug, I said, I'm I'm pretty new at this whole pastoral thing. And I was wondering if you would, would mentor me. And he said, I don't know much about this whole mentoring thing but I'll be your friend. And as I recall, when he met me for lunch that day, he had just buried a very dear friend. Brothers and sisters, my friendship with Doug, I think God has been the most, single most effective thing in equipping me in the ministry. And even as I say that, I don't necessarily mean Equip me to to preach or to pastor or or to shepherd. But his friendship has equipped me to be faithful. 
I wonder if you have friends in your life who are doing that for you. Pray that God would equip you. And one of the the most predominant ways that God equips us to do the things that he has called us to, one of the most encouraging ways that he equips us to be faithful is by the people that he puts in our lives. Brothers and sisters, when you are praying that others may be equipped to do the will of God, do you recognize that you may very well be the answer to that prayer? That you, in God's mind, are the means for equipping other individuals in this church to do God's will, to be faithful? Of course, there are other means of equipping as well. By God's grace, in my tenure here, I've had opportunity to teach through Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Psalms, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Nahum, Malachi, Matthew, Luke, 1 Corinthians, Colossians, 2 Timothy, 1 Peter, 1 John. And I pray that they have been useful in equipping you. It's God's word that he has provided is an incredible encouragement and an incredible means of equipping you to be faithful. I I hope that you've seen, as your pastors have have labored every week, to not come up with new entertainment, new soapboxes, new speeches, but have drawn your attention to the Word, that you recognize its importance and its value in equipping you for faithfulness. This prayer moves very naturally from equipping to enabling. It says, may he work in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Scriptures tell us that all creation is made and sustained through Jesus Christ. He, he not only created everything, he preserves everything. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or dominions, authorities, powers, all things were created by him and through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And as Christians, we are told over and over and over again that we are in him. It follows that we can do works through him that would please him. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. In Christ, each of us has an eternally designated job description, which includes the task, the ability, and the place fulfilled. And whatever the task to which he has called us, we will be equipped for it as surely as a bird is capable of flight. And as we do these works that we are called to do, and as we are equipped and enabled to do them, we will be more and more his workmanship. And more and more our true selves. And let me say this about this task as well. You cannot measure this task the worth of that task, by the praise we receive or the joy that fulfills. 
so appreciate that, that Hebrews emphasizes, what it emphasizes over and over again, is not accomplishing some big and grand thing for God. He's not exhorting us to, to go out and to be a missionary in a difficult context or, or go to be a, a pastor of a large church. He, he doesn't exhort us to seize the day and chase our dreams. He doesn't forbid those things. But what he is concerned with is far more simple and far more essential. That which is his will, which is pleasing in his sight and brings glory to him. It may be that you have set such high expectations for your life you can only evaluate your life positively if your greatest ambition is filled or if that particular dream comes true. Or if you find some form of worldly success. But that is not what you are called to. That is not what you are equipped for. That is not the main thing that Christ is not at work for you to do to accomplish your dreams to make you look good to Fulfill your ambitions. He is at work in you to create usefulness. He is at work in you to bring pleasure and satisfaction. To bring glory and honor to Him. And I am so confident in this prayer because I have seen it over and over and over and over again in you, in this church. And the ways that you have encouraged me, and the ways that you have supported my family, whether it's been through a meal, watching our kids, helping with a project, sharing about God's providence while sitting around a campfire, all of these things bring glory and honor to God and have been signs of faithfulness in you. And my prayer for you and the prayer that I would ask of you for me is that these two things would continue to unite us. Our great God, our great task. Our God has given us his peace and his promises. He's given us his power to accomplish this task before us. Wherever we are, wherever we serve, whatever the circumstance, we're in this together. And may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We pray with you. Lord, it is by your grace and by your mercy that we are now at peace with you. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to the tasks that are before us, to, to live our lives 
not for ourselves, but for the glory of our Savior. Which may, as your will would, would see fit, to be extraordinary things for which there is much notoriety and acclaim. And I pray that even in that you would receive glory. But also, Father, in what the world might call mundane the raising of children, and the working of a job, and teaching a Sunday school class, and working in the nursery. Taking your cup of cold water in your name. Father, make us faithful. Help us to endure through this life. 